Today we're talking about the house party. That's what we're calling this series. The party that God is throwing on the earth right now, even if this past year didn't feel like a party. Obviously, we talked about that last week, that even just looking at the New Year's live stream of New York, the ball drop, it was not a party at all, <laughs> at all. But what's amazing to me is that God is always throwing a party in his house. And so as we move into this, this episode or this sermon or this talk, whatever you want to call it, we're going to be going through the interior design of God's house. And I think that's so cool because that's so different than Egypt. Egypt, again, it demanded no creativity. It was all bricks and straw. But now this God asks for whatever gift they want to give. And he designs it all in mind. And I think of any of you who are more creatively, maybe the Bible doesn't, it, it doesn't make you come as, it doesn't make you come as alive as maybe interior design or architecture or whatever your gift is. This whole series is really designed to show us that God is a God who speaks all languages, that his truth goes beyond language. If Pentecost taught us anything when tongues fell, it is that the truth of God goes beyond mere words. It goes beyond mere language. So we can say that God is good, but honestly, that doesn't mean that all of us really understand what that means. We can say that God loves us and mean entirely different things, which is why language is a barrier. When we look in Genesis, the great split of mankind was not the split of religion, but the split of language. Think about that. That when God wanted to divide people because they had gone into building the wrong mission, what he did, he didn't have to divide them based on their politics. He just had to split up their language, which is why what God did at Pentecost is he showed us the Holy Spirit is able to speak any language that is spoken in this room and outside of it, that he is able to speak beyond what we love and how we talk. So he's able to speak to the architects, to the interior designers, to the artists, to whatever your gift is. He's able to speak that language and I pray that you hear the truth of God in your own language today, whatever that would be. And so he goes into the interior design of his house and why I keep talking about interior design is my wife is an interior designer. And so I read some of her books sometimes and interior designers are artists in and of their own right. I've never really looked deep into the interior design world, but it's crazy how much of a science there is to not just the aesthetic of a room, but how a room makes you feel. Have you ever stepped into a room and said, wow, however people set this up, it just feels good, feels right, however you set this room up. There's a few famous interior designers, one of them who said, I always start with the chair and I move from there. I start with the chair. If the chair's not right, the whole room's not right. 
And why I say that is God actually takes that same logic. He takes that same approach because he starts with the chair. He starts with the place that he sits. Have you ever been to someone's house and you look at their couch and wonder if anyone's actually ever sat in the couch because it looks so perfectly fluffed? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, when the couch, it looks really nice, but is your couch really that nice if nobody can sit on it? You know, <laughs> especially when you're planning a party. If you plan a party, you better make sure there's enough places for people to sit. Because if you invited me, and I might sound a little bit judgmental here, but if you invited me to your house and there's not an atmosphere to relax, then why'd you even invite me? <laughs> why'd I come to your house if I'm not going to be vulnerable? Because <laughs> there's something about sitting down and talking to someone. And that's one thing they said about Jesus with the sinners. It said they reclined by him. That was one of the greatest complaints that the religious leaders had about Jesus was who was able to recline with him? Who was able to sit down with him? Because in order to sit down, we both have to, it kind of forces us to relax. If I'm standing up and I'm talking to you, I can kind of keep my nervous quirks going, you know, I can kind of keep all that going. But if we sit down, it kind of forces me to breathe. And be a little bit more vulnerable than maybe if we were just having a passing conversation. If we sit down with each other, it means that we are sitting down to converse. I am sitting down with you because I am opening my heart to you. And so I find it so interesting in God's house that he starts with his seat and he moves outward. He starts from where he's seated in a place called the Holy of Holies. It's the most treasured place to him. You do not play in this space called the Holy of Holies. Like if you mess around, people die. <laughs> Let's be real about this. That what we're talking about today, we are talking about the part of God's house that he takes most seriously. You don't come in here without the right pattern. If you come in without the right pattern, again, people die. We see that all throughout the Old Testament where if the pattern of worship was not aligned correctly, there's only going to be death in the Holy of Holies. So I want to make sure what we're talking about today, when we're talking about where God sits, we're talking about the throne room. We're reading from an Old Testament story but this Old Testament story is a picture of our reality. That's what the Old Testament is. It is a shadow, everyone say shadow, of good things to come. So it's not that this room is what holds the literal truth. It is symbolic of what is real to us in the spiritual realm. It is real to us in our daily lives in how we relate to God. So there is a space that God starts from on the inside of his house. And I'd like to acknowledge this first too. God starts from the inside while man starts from the outside. He's going to start with the Ark of the Covenant. He's going to start with the deepest, most inside transformation. 
He starts from the ark. He starts from the throne room. And he goes out through the temple, through his house, and he meets man on the outside. Man does not start at the ark. God starts at the ark. Man starts at, and we're going to look at this in weeks ahead, he starts at something called the bronze altar. It's the place of sacrifice. Man begins its, listen to me here, man begins with sacrifice, God ends with sacrifice. God finishes where we start. So if you start you are starting from God's finished line, which is why when Jesus said it is finished at the cross, what he was saying is that every single day you wake up, you are not starting from the start line. You are not starting from behind. You ever feel like that, like you woke up behind? I want us this year to start waking up like we're starting from the finish line, that where we start is where God finished. I am stepping into something that God has already finished in me and around me. Oh, I'm grateful for that 9 a.m. I'm grateful for that 9 a.m., that God starts where I finish and he finishes where I start. That's a big statement. Too much there. I don't really want to spend all of our time on that. I want to move forward into God's chair if we can bring forth God's chair in his house. And I want to look at what God says about this chair in Exodus 25. Because let's keep in mind, there's only one chair in the house of God. And I, I can't imagine going to a party and somebody only had one chair. That's kind of an interesting thing. And guys, I said this last week that this was going to be 500 pounds, and I don't think that's 500 pounds. No. No. <laughs> no. 250. <laughs> 250. But thank you to, by the way, can we give it up for a guy named Donnie built this? And it's pretty close. It's pretty close to the actual measurements. There are a few measurements of, this is called the Ark of the Covenant. There are a few measurements to this that the Bible does not give, I think, in order to never be able to replicate it entirely from man's position. But this is pretty close. The cherubim would have been bigger, these angelic beings, but otherwise this is pretty close. And so I'm grateful to be able to... Uh, talk about this today because this is one of my favorite things to study since I've been 15. I want to open up Exodus 25, verse 10, and let's read about what God says about this piece of furniture in his house. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth and a cubit and a half its height. Verse 11. You shall overlay it with pure gold, just like you see up here. This is obviously not real gold, but you get the point. Inside and outside, you will overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. Verse 12. You shall cast four rings of gold, right here. Two on this side, two on this side. Verse 13, you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. 
because this was to forever remain portable. That's a massive point of this. That this was to remain portable. You'd never take the poles out of this. Why? Because if you take the poles out of this, it implies that God is settling down in the wilderness. But God did never intend to settle down in the wilderness. He always intended to move with his people. We are moving. That's why the New Testament calls us the church in the wilderness. That as we're moving through our journey as a family, we will experience many of the same things that it's a pattern, the book of Exodus, which is why we're reading from it. That as he, as he designs this, it's absolutely incredible what he's saying. He put the poles and the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. Never take the poles out. The poles shall remain in the rings and they shall not be taken from it. Verse 16. And you shall put into the ark, so in this, the testimony that I shall give you. And I want to say, because he's not going to say it in this portion, but in this box, in this carrier, what he calls the testimony are three different symbols of their fallings, of the times they've rejected him. You have the Ten Commandments, which they broke. You have a golden pot of manna, which they complained about. <laughs> and you have Aaron's rod, which represents God's leadership that they have rejected. So you have three different items, and they're not actually in here. We didn't do that. But imagine three different items that represent our failings, our sin, our mistakes, where we have not met God's standard. We've disobeyed him. What's absolutely incredible about this is that when you study this ark and you look at how it happens, how, how the journey of this ark goes throughout Scripture. Literally, the Indiana Jones thing was such, it was taken from a biblical example. That whenever people would lift the lid, it's a little bit, it's pretty heavy. But whenever people would lift the lid, did you get scared right there? Like maybe Indiana Jones might happen. <laughs> you got kind of nervous, like, <laughs> protect your face. Put your glasses on. <laughs> but whenever people, there was a story where the Israelites, they, they had lost the ark for a time, which is an incredible story in and of itself. And I'd like to preach on it someday. But they actually gave this ark away to the enemy. But in the hands of the enemy, it started cutting off their God's heads. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. It, and so the Philistines say, we don't want this. Take it back. Sometimes I think the, I, I hear the same cry from the world. I see sometimes people who don't, you know, they don't prescribe to the language of the Bible and they don't prescribe to any of the Jesus stuff, but you can see that they have some underlying truths from this. But sometimes I listen when I talk to my unbelieving friends. I, I listen to them sometimes, and it's so interesting. It, it's almost like they ask the same thing. Take it, take it back. <laughs> because outside of this context, uh, outside of understanding what this really is, this can actually kill you. <laughs> yeah. 
it can kill you. We're not, you don't play with this. You do not play with this whatsoever. And even God's own people, even God's own people, the second that they got the ark back, they looked in it and I forget how many hundreds died. It was a massacre. But why that is, watch this. Remember, what's inside the ark? It's the symbol of our failings. Verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat. The lid. You shall make the mercy seat. Isn't that a perfect word for something to be the lid on our failings? A mercy seat. He calls the lid that covers the mercy seat. Keyword seat. Everyone say mercy seat. Notice he didn't call it the mercy lid. He called it the mercy seat. You shall make a mercy seat, the lid, of pure gold. You shall overlay it, or you shall make it. But what's incredible about this is essentially what we see, why death occurs when you lift the lid is its proof. Whenever you remove the mercy seat, people die. First John says that Jesus has been made unto us our mercy seat. The coverings of our rebellions and our failings. But see, what can happen is we can start to think from a lower glory. It's a lower glory. Paul himself said that as long as we are preaching a message of condemnation to people, it's called the ministry of death. Because literally... If we want to spend our time relating to people more based on their failings than the mercy seat that was provided at the finished work of Jesus, what will happen is we will continually lift the lid up off of the goodness of God. And when we do that, we will only find that message killing people. I think God's done with People sitting in churches and speaking to people without a mercy seat covering their gospel, without a mercy seat covering their message. Because see, here's the thing. I can't learn how God relates to people until I learn how God relates to me. But when we start here, I want us to acknowledge that when we come to God, which is where this is where he meets us from his seat. It doesn't literally look like this, but it's symbolic of the truth of what it is. He says that above the mercy seat, I will meet with you. If we could bring the jib, Marcus, I, I want to show you a few different cool camera shots just to really paint this picture for you. But when we come to God, and again, you don't always have to imagine this is literally what it looks like when you're coming to him. But he says that I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from above this. So this tells us that whenever we come to God, he is primarily relating to us based on mercy. When God views you, he is not viewing you through the lens of if the mercy seat is off. 
He is only seeing you through the lens of his mercy. And that mercy came because justice was executed at the cross. Why there's a mercy seat that covers our failings is because there was a mercy seat that was made for us whose name is Jesus. And what he does for us in the presence of God, when we come to God, we can come to the throne of grace boldly. Yeah, it's no longer a judgment seat because now it's a mercy seat. It's now the finished work of Jesus that has turned what had once been a judgment seat where death was handed out. Now when we come to this seat, when we come to where God is, what he does is he's only giving out mercy from this throne. And something else to realize is the only person who can come in here is the high priest anyway. The high priest was the representative for the people. That was the difference between a prophet and a high priest is that the prophet represented God to the people, but the high priest represented the people to God. So when the high priest of Israel would come before God, and I almost wore high priestly garments, but I thought that would be too far, so I didn't do it. And we didn't have it made. So. I don't know if Donnie can cut fabrics. He can cut wood, but I don't know if he can do that. But the high priest would come into the presence and the cloud of glory would be over it, God in a cloud. And what would happen, it would be pure light. There was no artificial light here. Before you entered into the Holy of Holies, there was something called the menorah. It was a light that was filling the entire, entire holy place. But once we come into this, the only light that exists is the light of God. There's no artificial light in here. And so when the high priest would come forward, he'd be wearing his beautiful garments, and he had a breastplate on his chest. And on the breastplate, it had all 12 tribes of Israel's names written in jewels. Remember where it says Jesus is our high priest? That's some of the most incredible news we could ever get because you know what this tells us? Back in those times, it really didn't matter how good the people were. It mattered how good the high priest was. And if the people were bad, but the high priest was good, it didn't matter because the high priest was good and he represented them before God. And if the high priest was good, the people were looked at as good. So the people put their expectation in the goodness of the high priest. It's all about how my high priest meets the standards. If my high priest meets the standards, I can expect to be bold in what I pray because what I pray will come to pass. I can be bold, I can be confident, I can put my shoulders back, and I can carry myself with a little bit more confidence now. Why? Because I have a high priest who stands before the presence of God, and he intercedes for me. He stands in the gap for me. So even if I have completely lost it this year, I'm grateful that my high priest is stable. Because if my high priest is perfect, then I am considered perfect in the eyes of God. But remember the breastplate on the heart? The truth there is that Jesus, our high priest, presents us to God 
as jewels on his heart. <laughs> Different colored jewels. Diverse jewels. All so beautiful in their own uniqueness and variety and creativity. But you know what's so incredible about jewels is that they reflect light. <laughs> oh, I want you to get this one. And this is where we switch perspectives. Because see, it's one thing for us to understand how God relates to us, but once we understand how God relates to us, we understand how God relates to others. And I was having a conversation with God the other day during Christmas time. I, I said, you know, it just seems a little bit selfish. You only got one seat in your house, to be honest with you. It seems a little selfish. Okay, I understand if that's the only place, because there's only one place to sit. One place to sit in the house of God. One place to rest. There's no other place to sit down. So if we're going to find any rest, the possibility lies here. But then I feel a little bit blasphemous for a second because I'm like, well, that's the Ark of the Covenant. That's the throne of God. I mean, I don't know if I can sit where you sit. But then you know what he said to me? He said, where else would you sit? What does Ephesians say? That we are seated with him. I'm seated with him in heavenly places. I never really understood what that meant. But now I understand why Paul lays out Ephesians in three different patterns, three different actions. He says he begins the whole book by three chapters of saying where we are seated and who we are. Three chapters. All about who you are all about who you actually are and where your identity is seated. Then he takes two chapters to talk about how we walk. Everyone say walk. This is about behavior. This is about how to walk in love. This is about how to live out this gospel. So three chapters on sitting, two chapters on walking, then a final chapter on standing. Having done all to stand, I stand. Now we're talking about spiritual warfare. Honestly, you know what's interesting? In 2020, I did a lot of what I thought was standing and a lot of what I thought was walking, but none of that matters if I don't know how to sit down. That if we don't teach people how to sit down, they'll never know how to walk anyway. So I don't even know if we can have a conversation on behavior until we sit where God sits. Because can we say that we even see what God sees until we sit where he sits? How can I give you anything else other than my own opinion until I sit where he sits? He says, I am seated with him in heavenly places. So something else happens now. When I understand how God relates to me, I then begin to understand how I relate to others. And when I sit here, this happened to me last night too, something happens. I feel like God loves us so much in my heart. Just this image, just this image of it. Because at first I was kind of nervous, like, oh, you know, like those little fears in me, like, can I actually sit there? Where else would you sit, son? There's nowhere else to sit. So either you sit down with me and see, 
Something happened during Christmas when I sat here for the first time. I began to realize, you don't play around when you sit here because this is where God orders the world from. This is where authority happens. If you're not sitting on the mercy seat, there's no authority. This is where God commands from. So I don't understand why he commands until I sit where he sits. See, it's one thing to know what God does. It's another thing to know why he does it. That's when you really start to get into his heart. You start to understand, or you start to ask questions, why? Like a child. That's what a child does, right? Why? When we sit here, I begin to realize it's very intense how I see people. And I'm closing. I'm beginning to close on this. The only person that comes in here for people is the high priest. So let's get this straight in and of itself. The only person that is coming before this is Jesus for, for us. It's a high priest. And so when I look at this space and the high priest comes, what's absolutely incredible about this is the same Jesus that is my high priest is the same Jesus that is the mercy seat that I sit on. <laughs> so this Jesus, he's not only the mercy seat that allows us to see the world from an entirely different space, but he is also the high priest that represents people before God. And so now when I'm looking at people from God's perspective, Think of what happens now when God sees the jewels on the high priest's chest. Light reflects, right? So when God looks at the high priest, it's like he's just looking in a mirror. When God looks at Jesus' heart, he's just looking at a mirror, which means when he looks at you, he's just looking in a mirror. Oh, I need you to get this. I need you to get this, that we all as in a mirror beheld the glory of the Lord. Why we read this Bible is for identity. It's not concepts. It's not theories. It's a mirror, the entire Bible that we all with an unveiled face behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Whoa. Whoa. So when I read the Bible, if the Bible is pointing, pointing out more faults in me, if the Bible is point, pointing out more, more things that it's just making me, because I know I, I've had times like this where I've read scripture and I just, I, it's all just words you know when you read it that way where it's all just letters and you read it and you do your daily Bible reading and I got my word in for the day. But there's something happens when you see beyond the words into the spirit of what he's saying. The letters, the letter kills. If it's just words, it'll kill you. If it's just words, if it's just language. But when we look at the spirit of this, we find out that everything, the same way that Jesus read the Bible, Jesus read the Bible to find out who he already was. 
Jesus read the Bible to find out who he already was. He was looking in the mirror as he read Scripture. And that is our same duty as we read Scripture. We are reading this like we are looking in a mirror. But every time I look in the mirror, I am going to be seeing more of Jesus' glory that's already inside of me that I just wasn't aware of. So what makes this so incredible, though, is it's not just that when I look at God, I'm looking in a mirror. It's that when God looks at me, he's looking at a mirror. Whoa, see, see, that makes it way less theoretical for me because it's one thing to say, oh, God sees me that way because I see people do this. I see people use scripture to run from God. See it all the time where we all behold. Yeah, we all know that scripture. We behold as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. I'm so grateful that he sees me as perfect, even though I'm not. I'm so grateful that he sees me as so good, even though I'm not. No, he's saying that's who you really are. He's saying, believe in how I see you. He says, is what I see not real? Is what I see not real? Because sometimes we take that. To be honest with you, sometimes I used to kind of use that and be like, oh, that's amazing. That's amazing that you see me in your righteousness, but I'm just such a, I'm so bad. I'm so bad. I'm so shameful and I'm so grateful that you see me in your righteousness. You know what he said to me this year? Step out of that. Step out of that hole. No, you come boldly when you come to the throne of grace. Why? Because I respect the blood that's been shed on it. Because I respect the justice and the holiness that it takes to step into this space. I don't understand mercy until I understand holiness. And I don't understand holiness until I understand mercy. Because it is injustice. It is with justice that God looks down, and I want to show this. Because when he looks down, he's only seeing a mercy seat and the high priest. Mercy seat, high priest. Mercy seat, high priest. This is my closing point. This made me so aware of how many people I've got my finger pointed at. You don't bring any accusations in here unless you really want to go into that court trial. No. No. You don't come in here with, I I realized when I sit here, all my accusations against people go. My accusations, I cannot carry accusations and sit on the mercy seat. The only way I could have an accusation against you is if I took the mercy seat off. And if I took the mercy seat off, I'm already dead anyway. So you shouldn't matter. You shouldn't care what I think about you anyway. (laughs) If I have an accusation against you, it's because I took the mercy seat off and I'm a dead person walking. So you have no reason to even listen to me. You know how many times I've come in to the Holy of Holies and I've acted like the accuser's advocate? Seriously, I stand up in this place and it's crazy to me how many people can sit in church where we believe in a Jesus who's an advocate and yet we stand in the accuser's seat and we point fingers like we're better. But all we're doing, you're operating from down here. That's why judgment, it is a lower frequency 
It is a lower level of glory because you have to stoop down. If I want to look at you and all your flaws and mistakes, I got to take this off. I got to remove the finished work of Jesus. You know, someday I kind of wanted to preach a message <laughs> called get your butt out of here because you know how much I hear, well, God's good, but... Uh, well, I know God loves everybody, but have you seen them? Your butt is definitely not on the mercy seat if that's the case. Yeah, yeah. You better get your butt. The only place it better be is on the mercy seat at this point. Because if it lands on any other place, you better be careful where you put your butt because your butt might get you killed. <laughs> When I, say, when I say that, I mean that with so much seriousness, too, because I really mean it. I see so many dead people that walk around with Scripture acting like Scripture is what made them, made them what they are. But honestly, if it's just letters, it's not the Spirit. There's a Spirit to this. There's a reality to this. It's not just words, and it's not just a concept. And so as we close today, what I want to make us aware of is there are no accusations that apply here. As a matter of fact, if you come in here with accusations, the same things happens that happened when Jesus was confronted with the woman caught in the act of adultery. There's no way around it at that point, folks. She's caught in the act, probably thrown down naked in front of a group of men. We don't know where the dude is, we assume. It's probably because it's one of them. But that being said, <laughs> how did they catch her in the act? Where's the guy? We don't know. But there's the girl. Teacher, Moses said in the law that she should be stoned. So what? Their fingers are out. And they are coming to the Holy of Holies because this represents, this is Jesus. They are coming to the Ark of the Covenant at this point. Teacher, Moses said in the law she should be stoned. What do you say? And he stoops down. Ooh, catch this, catch this, catch it, catch it. He stoops down and he writes on the ground. He stoops down almost to their level of thinking at this point. It's an irony because... The same commandments that they used to accuse this girl, he is the one that wrote them. <laughs> he is the only one who has the right to accuse. Yet the only one who has the right to accuse the woman does not accuse the woman, but points a finger right back at the ones that had a finger pointed and say, he who is without sin among you, throw the first stone. He throws it right back. Okay, you want to take the mercy seat off? How you doing? <laughs> How you doing? Said the oldest left first. So I think that's interesting. It's almost like the young men had more pride. You know, the, the old men knew, they knew, well, I've made some mistakes. <laughs> but the oldest to the youngest, they left. And this is what I want to make the point on. The first thing Jesus did is he accused the accusers. That's a crazy statement to me. He threw it right back at them. 
If you want to point a finger, look in the mirror. If you've got an accusation against her, you've got an accusation against you. So I want to ask you, do you, do you have sin? He that is without sin, throw a stone. And the only one who's actually without sin in the whole space accuses the ones that accused. And now the accused person sits in front of him probably, I mean, we assume very minimal clothing. This is a crazy, imagine this movie scene. I mean, in front of the Ark of the Covenant, imagine this, it's Jesus, the Ark of the Covenant, and a naked woman caught in the act of adultery. And Jesus says, ma'am, where are your accusers? Notice the order, really, watch this. Where are your accusers? She says, they've, they've all gone. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You ever hear in church how sometimes we reverse the order completely where first we tell people to go and sin no more, then we say there will be no condemnation, then we say all their accusers will leave. Then we say people won't have accusation against you. But you know where Jesus starts? He says, number one, the accusations of people have no hold on you. And after, you, after I clarify that, then I want to clarify, I have no condemnation for you either, even though I'm the only one who has the right to accuse. I have no condemnation for you. Now in the power of knowing that I am guiltless before God, I have the power to live in holiness. I have the power to go and sin no more. That once I understand how guiltless I am in the eyes of Jesus, I now have the power to actually go out and walk as he has walked and walk in love even as we are loved. And so... Man, I'm, this is so good. This is so good. This is so good. Before you leave, I just want to remind you, there are no accusations that apply to you. If anyone has an accusation against you or there's anybody out there in the world right now who you have a problem with in this way where you feel like, feel like people got a lot to say about me, I want you to hear that same word that same word come into your heart today that where are your accusers? Because honestly, there are, no, there are no accusations. There are no accusations that even apply to you because the only one who has the right to accuse says that you're guiltless in my eyes. So if you want to believe what they say over what I say, I really wouldn't do that anyway. Amen. I just want to say this church God sees you from the mercy seat, and as you step forward into this week, I want us to walk with a mercy seat confidence. I know for sure I'm going to take that step today, where if we just all decided together that I'm going to take confidence like my high priest really represents me as perfect, like I'm really going to walk around with so much faith and trust that I'm not going to be so aware of people's intentions or what they even might be trying to do to me. I'm just going to walk and realize that even if there's a Judas in my life, God's going to use that Judas to bring me to the greatest expression of his victory in my life anyway. So you know what? I'm going to embrace the Judas because I got a mercy seat that allows me to embrace everything happening in my life because at this point, at this space, at this space, all things work together. Whoa. All things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Guys, I hope that you enjoyed this message. I hope it hits you somewhere really deep because it hits me somewhere really deep. 
because I really, it makes me leave here with no accusations for anybody. Like I've got no finger to point. My only finger being pointed is in the finished work of Jesus, that mercy, and that's how I'm going to relate to the world this week, and I hope that you do too.